0: All right, let me ask an honest question here. How many of you enjoyed a Browns victory? And you're like, that's why I'm at the noon service? Because there's no Browns game at 1 o'clock. Anybody here? All right, a couple of you. All right, there you go. And, uh, but it was, uh, yeah, fun to have that and say, I don't have to be anxious about a football game coming up and, you know, interrupting Pastor Jonathan's sermon at 101 going, yes! You know, and and whatever. Glad to have you here today. And I want to start off just with the, I got a letter from someone, I think, it's a reminder of how when you're in the community and you're just having conversations, simply raising the flag of your faith, just going, hey, here's a God-answered prayer, here's a, I'm part of this group, and we're learning together, you know, parenting class or whatever it might be. And it often can lead to conversations then that just make a difference for someone. So I got an email this week from someone who said how they started coming to Grace. And here's what they wrote. I just want to read an excerpt of the letter. They said, I wanted to find a church where I could bring my family. Every time I would drive by Grace, I would find myself looking at the church almost like God was telling me, that's a good church. I ran into my neighbors and said, hey, what church do you go to? And they said, we go to Grace. A little time passed, and I had some dental work done, always one of my favorites. And one of the assistants mentioned to me that she goes to a church that really helped her so much when she went through a divorce. And if it wouldn't have been for them, she doesn't know where she would have been. I asked her, what church do you go to? And she said, Grace Church. Well, a little time goes by, and I'm at work. My coworker starts talking about church, and she said she goes to a really good church, and she has two special needs nephews, and that perked my ears up, being that I have a special needs child, and they have a room especially for them, a special needs Sunday school. I was really intent on asking her what church she go to, and so I asked her, and she said, I go to Grace. I thought, I think God is telling me something. Well, it was getting close to Easter, and the driver that drives my daughter to her workshop day center asked me, are you going to church on Easter? And I said, I want to. Uh, what church do you go to? And she answered, I go to Grace. Uh, where are you going? She says, I'm going to go to Grace too. <laughs> when we came in, everyone was so nice to us, uh, being that we were new, but they made us feel right at home. I said, thank you, Lord, for leading me. So you never know when you're just in the community, and it's not about getting people to a church, but really getting helping people to find a relationship with jesus but often that happens in a church body and even your kindness when people are here there's people around you not far from you or are pretty new to grace so thanks for reaching out and just being a part of their journey our journeys are interesting aren't they that uh there are people who are on their way to christ and they're investigating and, and they're excited about the newfound journey there's some people in the middle of that and then there are times that you, you watch people who are really struggling, and it, it happens to a lot of uh, folks, and, and including some of us. Uh, Paul Maxwell is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. I should say Paul Maxwell was a professor at Moody Bible Institute. Last year, 2021, he renounced his faith in Jesus. And he posted on his Instagram, he said, I'm no longer a Christian. He has a PhD from Wheaton, which is another great school, wrote several Christian books, and was a writer with a ministry called Desiring God. Some of you know the name John Piper. What happened to Paul Maxwell that he would get to that place of saying, I've I've renounced my faith and I'm no longer a Christian? I want to take this week and next week to talk about what many call deconstruction. If that's a term that's new for you, it means when a person sort of evaluates their belief system, And what they grew up with or where they've been and they begin to question and some will leave their entire faith system behind or whatever they believe because it might not be Christianity It might be they were Islam or uh, Islamic or Hindu or or maybe no faith at all and they go wow I grew up with no faith and I'm really questioning if that was the right way whatever it is they sometimes will leave everything behind other times they leave parts of it behind. I want to emphasize that distinction because as we talk about this topic, to deconstruct is not always a negative thing. In fact, we're going to look at that today. We're going to see an example in the Bible of someone who needed to deconstruct and how it helped them and the church in the early church to grow. So you might know someone already in your head going, I know someone who's going through that reevaluating what they believe, or maybe it's you. That you're on a journey, uh, some of you here, the, those you, you engaging online, you're going, I'm, I'm questioning, I don't really know for sure, I have these doubts that are in the shadows of my life, I haven't even really talked to a lot of people about them, but, but I'm, I'm feeling some of that. I want, I want to say that I, I want Grace Church to be a safe place where you can come and investigate and be in a journey, you don't have all the answers figured out. I don't have all the answers figured out, but you say, but is this a place where I can investigate and grow and just be in a place of beginning to learn or, or continuing to learn? And, and I want grace to be a place like that. In Jude chapter 1, Jude chapter 1, that's the second last book of the Bible, there's a little phrase that says this Be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Would you say that with me aloud? Ready? Be merciful to those who doubt. If you've been thinking like, I need to memorize a Bible verse, you just got it. Let's say it one more time, ready? Be merciful to those who doubt. That's the whole verse in Jude chapter one. And 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 so we want to be merciful as a church, with each other, with people we care about. If you're the one that you'll say, I'm not being ridiculed or made, or that's, I can't believe that's so dumb or whatever, but to say no, I've got some honest questions and I'm trying to wrestle with this and and because I really want to, to, to understand where it is that I what I believe. And and so my prayer has been, Lord, would you make this a place we have people who come to grace who don't agree with some of what we teach here or believe about the Bible or and or they're in process. But here's what I, I love when people tell me they go, I sense God there. Like I just when we're worshiping, sometimes tears will come, I just sense his presence. And I feel loved. You know, people are just—I I feel cared about—and—and—and and, and my prayer is that that's what people experience here at Grace. And so we all go through a certain amount of doubt. That's human, and—and uh, and the key is to keep your journey honest, to study, to learn, to address the questions you have, to ask the Lord to guide you in that because He's merciful as well. And—and and I'm encouraged by how graciously He responds to us when we—when we doubt. So. We're gonna talk about deconstruction this week and next and see what the Bible says about that. But let me just, uh, you'll see something on the screen here. Here Here's some global trends. On the one hand, the number of people following Jesus is growing quickly. Christianity continues to have the largest following globally at 2.4 billion people. That's amazing, a motley crew of like 12 disciples who often messed up and then they grew maybe to 100, 150 people and Jesus ascends to heaven. And today, like, of almost a third of the world's population, uh, and especially in parts of Asian Africa where the churches are rapidly multiplying. At the same time, we all know people who we go are in the process of saying, I don't really know if I believe the way I used to, and they're wrestling with, with their, you know, what it is that, that they say, this is, do, do I really hold on to this or not? And maybe it's in your own home. Uh, There's certainly people here at Grace who have been in that kind of place. So, next week, we're going to look at some additional factors that lead to deconstruction. And we're going to see the most important question to address when you have doubts like that. Like, there's a lot of things that you can address, but what's the biggest question to answer if you begin to have doubts? What's the starting place when you feel confused or overwhelmed? And if this hasn't been your experience at all, you're like, I don't really get how people doubt. It's so clear, like it's amazing. I can't, what's wrong with them? How can you be a little more merciful to those who doubt? If people are questioning, how can you respond in a way that will impact them positively and not negatively? So we'll look at that next week, and we'll look at what happens when you, when deconstruction, just people leave everything behind. But today what I want to do is look for starts at the process of deconstruction, how it can be a process that actually strengthens our faith, that really can. And we're going to look at an example in the Bible. So you can turn with me to Acts chapter 10. It's the fifth book of the New Testament. If you have your Bible app, you can do that, or paper Bible. Also, there were notes on your way in. Those of you engaging online or those of you here, you can also, go to gracema.org and just click the bulletin. You'll see the notes right there to follow along. It'll be helpful for you. Uh, let me say again hi to those of you who are engaging online. Uh, we miss seeing you. We hope we get to see you soon on site. We love you. And uh, to the guys at Lorraine Correctional, just talk to Marty, who uh, is helping to lead the Alpha there on Wednesdays and just really grateful for all that's going on uh, with Galvanized and Come Back Thursday and and et cetera. So I want you to know that all those prayer requests you fill out and put on three by five cards, go to prayer team people here, and they're, they're praying for you as well. Hold your place in Acts chapter 10. I want to talk first about the deconstruction process, how it happens, because it doesn't start with deconstruction. To deconstruct means that prior to that, there's been what? construction, right? So the first step in the journey is construction. We all grow up with influences that cause us to build a worldview. And for a lot of us, it was maybe mom or dad or, you know, grandpa or uh, whoever, some aunt, and it might have been some friends you had along the way. And as you are at dinner table or you're in the car, you're talking, you begin to, to adopt the values of the people you love and respect and are closest to you. Not always the way it happens, but that's often the case. Sometimes with with friends, maybe you went to a house of worship of some sort, and you began to construct things in your life that just seemed normal to you. For some of you, it wasn't a religious, it was a non-religious. You know, you grew up in a place where, you know, mom and dad were like, hey, you believe whatever you want to believe. We just sort of think that when you die, it's like all done. And, And you grew up thinking that's just the way it is. And you might be questioning like, that lack of religious, you know, or faith or whatever. But we all construct something, and that's the first part of the process there, that it becomes normal to us and and what you grew up with. And then there comes an event in your life, uh, something that causes you to question, and that's where you come to what many people would call a deconstruction of faith. You rethink foundational beliefs or a lack thereof. When I went off to college, some of you know that I grew up in a home, I'm the sixth of nine children, so I had five older siblings like blazing a trail for me, not to mention my mom and dad who really loved Jesus. So I go off to college and I began to question, I thought, how much do I believe because my mom and dad believe? Some of you grew up with faith, you, you, you wondered that. And I took it a step further and I said, what if my mom and dad renounced their faith would i still be a follower of jesus and i had to wrestle with that i began to just question and say how much of my belief system is connected with my parents and how much is really this is mine that was a healthy thing to go through right that was that was good for me to wrestle with, and I began sort of a period of wrestling with and reassessing my faith. For other people, it might be a, a major life event. They, they get a, you know, a cancer diagnosis, or they go through bankruptcy, or a divorce hits, or something else major, and they, they, they question. They're maybe disappointed with God, and they go, if God allowed that, like, I don't, I don't know if I can trust him. For some people, and this really breaks my heart, it's been because they've seen a religious leader, could be a pastor, an author, a Christian music celebrity, or whatever, who has wound up in the ditch and been seen to be like a a fraud of some sort. Or maybe it's been in a church where everything looks so good, and then you found out there was this tremendous amount of hypocrisy on the inside. You go, I'm just disillusioned. Is that what Christianity is? I just want to say, just pause a second here and say, I am so grateful for the leadership at Grace. You might be going, that sounds sort of self-serving. I'm talking about the elder team and, and the staff and that any one of us, I've just said, Lord, would you help us? We're not perfect people, but if there is any kind of like deception or where we're pretending, God, would you just expose that in our hearts? Help us to be people who truly love you with all of our hearts and who want to lock arms together with the Grace family and say, we're going after Jesus. Do you want to come with us? But when you see that that looks to be that way and then someone lets you down, that, that can be a catalyst for deconstruction. For many, it's heading off to university. I mentioned going to college. For me, I went to a Christian college. But for some people, they go to a secular university And there are certain professors, not all, but certain professors who intentionally are seeking to deconstruct the belief system of their students, sometimes specifically Christian students. And it almost gives them a sense of like, I've accomplished my mission if I can cause them to doubt everything that they once believed. I wonder if any of that describes part of your journey or someone you care about and you go, yeah, that, I, I can name a few people who it's, can I just say this to be clear it's, it's nothing new, this has been happening across the centuries, like where people have been doubting, in fact we're going to see next week in our, that Jesus told us this would happen, his early followers said, hey, you can expect this so don't be surprised that there's going to be people who drift away who cash in their faith, that's not, that shouldn't surprise, it can, it can grieve us but it doesn't have to surprise us It might be more pronounced now maybe the news just spreads more quickly because of instagram and facebook and all the rest but there's a sense in which we say wow what's happening when someone we see them begin to question and when they do it can go a couple of different directions for some people sadly they just they stop here there's construction they deconstruct and then you ask them you go well you you, you're leaving you say everything behind they're not just just deconstructing parts of their faith they're like letting it all go and you go so what's your what's your north star today like what what do you what's your clear what's your worldview And I i don't know and for me i say i come back to what peter says when jesus has a number of his followers leaving him john chapter six and jesus says are you going to leave me as well and peter responds lord to whom else can we turn like, I don't, know, I don't know where else I would go. You have the words, remember what he says, of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. Lord, I don't know where else I would go. So you, you construct, you, you might deconstruct part of what you've had or all of it, but, but then the third step, and it's incomplete, it's unhealthy unless we go to the third step. We do, if we had construction and deconstruction, we have next is what? Re- reconstruction, that's right. We have a reconstruction. James Emery White, author of The Rise of the Nuns, after the last service, someone said, is that like Catholic nuns, The Rise of the Nuns? Uh, No, it's The Rise of the Nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Although The Rise of the Nuns would be, they might go, yes, The Rise of the Nuns are going to rise up. But The Nuns is those who have no religious affiliation, which is often called the nuns. They They, N-O-N-E-S, like none. I, I, there's, you know, and, and so he writes this book and his, his uh, research has helped a lot of my message today and some of his phraseology and wording. I've, I've just been grateful and borrowed from him. But he put it this way. He says, for some people, deconstruction simply means demolition. Something is lost, but nothing new is built. Something's rejected, but nothing's accepted. Something is stripped down, but never rebuilt. And that's not what a true, healthy deconstruction is all about, because you miss out on the third step, and that is reconstruction, which really has the potential to lead to a stronger faith. Uh, Because deconstruction doesn't have to actually mean a destruction of, of faith or the end of faith, and instead it can be reconstructing a faith that is more healthy and vibrant and genuine and well-reasoned and all, all all the rest it's possible to leave behind things that have gotten attached to our faith that actually are slowing us down uh, james white puts it this way he says god works with men and women in order to get them to deconstruct wanting us to shed anything and everything that may have become a part of our life that is unhealthy unwise unsound and untrue i want to look at an example of that in the bible Acts chapter ten. Acts chapter 10 might I've been saying, like, when are you going to get to Acts chapter ten? Let me just get the background up here for you. We're looking at a guy. If you look there, you'll see it's about a guy named Cornelius and a guy named Peter. And Peter, remember, remember, Pastor Cream had a great message a few weeks ago. We talked about Peter and his confession of Jesus. And Jesus says, "Your name is Peter, and I'm this rock. Your confession of faith and who I am. I'm going to build my church." And even the gates of hell won't be able to withstand its advance. So so Peter is going to be really key. And so you read in Acts chapter 2, Peter is the one who presents the gospel to the the, uh, Jewish people. And throughout the book of Acts, and including here in Acts 10, is when the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his forgiveness, is going to go to non-Jews or Gentiles. And Cornelius is going to be the guy. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Peter was raised in a Jewish home and steeped, in the traditions and rules of Judaism. And there were a ton of them. All kinds of rules and regulations that were dizzy just to remember, not to mention trying to keep them. You'll see on the screen here, it says this. In Jesus' day, the teachers of the law and Pharisees had taken the Old Testament and calculated that it contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. I never counted them, but I'll take them at their word. 365, one for every day of the week, right? Or for every day of the year, I mean. Um, but there was an expectation that you were uh, going to obey all of those every day. And it didn't stop there. They added rules to help them follow the rules. And so they came up with an additional 1,500 rules that would guarantee that they wouldn't break the 248 commandments or 365 prohibitions, and those were all gathered together in what is known now as the Mishnah. And then they said, you know what, we think we actually need to add some more. So they did layers upon layers upon layers to explain the rules of the rules of the rules that interpreted the Old Testament. And Jesus even addresses this, the Pharisees, that you put such heavy burdens on people. They called this last part the Gemara, and together the Mishnah and the Gemara uh, were later combined into a single writing known as the Talmud. It addressed dietary laws like no bacon, no shrimp, Uh, clothing stipulations, how you did family and home, all kinds of intricate rules. Did you know that even today, Mary and I spent the first five years of our marriage in the New York uh, City area, right outside New York City in Rockland County. And if you were to go to a hospital in a very orthodox area, the elevator on the Sabbath would stop at every single floor of the building. Why? Because to push a button was considered working on the sabbath you couldn't turn off a light you couldn't pick up a pencil you couldn't write a note i mean the rules went on and on and on you go is that part of the old testament there was all these additions and rules that they said well this is what how we're going to apply what that was all about so Here is the challenge. You have Peter, one of the key leaders of the early church. He grew up with all of this, this, these regulations of Judaism. And then you have Jesus who's leading a new way. And he goes, a new commandment I've given to you. Love one another. So I've loved you. You want to summarize all the Old Testament, you know, law and the prophets? He says, love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not 1,500 rules. He said, there's a new way of living and leading and loving and, and just treating people and, and all, and, and so here's Peter caught in the middle. He's supposed to take this message to the Gentiles, but he's got all this Judaism stuff, and for Peter even to walk into the house of a non-Jewish person would make him ceremonial unclean. Imagine trying to share your faith with someone. They go, oh, come, come over our house. You go over, and they're like, come on. and You go, oh, oh, I couldn't come in. To come into your house as a non Christian and make me ceremonial unclean? <laughs> how, how willing are they gonna to be to receive what you have to say? You mean like you're weird, first of all? Secondly, I don't want that kind of faith. If you think like there's something like I'm ceremonially unclean just because of my, my ethnic background or something? My, you know, and, and so Peter, had, Peter was torn between, so let's just say Peter needed to do some deconstructing, and guess who helps him to get there? The Lord himself, God is the primary mover for this process in Peter's life. And Peter ends up with a major deconstruction that made his faith even stronger. Let's read how it happened, Acts chapter 10. I'm going to read some selected portions here because we're going to read a lot of the chapter. Acts chapter 10, I'm using the New Living Translation today. But here's what it says beginning with verse 1. In Caesarea, a place you could still visit, right on the Mediterranean coast, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius. He was a Gentile, a non-Jew, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said, Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir, he asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Interesting how God sees what we give and do. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, who lives near the seashore, dropped down a little bit the next day as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town. Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. And then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Peter's what kind of background? Jewish. Peter's like, no, Lord. Those two words don't really go together, do they? No, Lord. No, Lord, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. No bacon, no lobster, nothing. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times because Peter was sort of hard-headed. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. A few more verses down. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And here's what happened. They talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Peter shares the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Cornelius and his family and friends accept the message. They're baptized. They become devoted followers of Jesus. And you know what the bigger impact is? That as Peter begins to shed some of his past, all these things that have built up around his faith, Peter's faith becomes his example. God is able to use him in significant ways. In the family of Jesus, the church begins to be built up, and ethnic boundaries are broken down so that there's people from lots of different backgrounds who socioeconomic levels and, and, uh, and ethnic you know, differences, and they all join together as one. In the church of Jesus, his family begins to grow and multiply in a way that countless lives are transformed so that from that little group of Jewish people who thought it was terrible thing to eat these things or go into the home of a Gentile, now continues to grow where there's thousands and then millions and today billions of people who are following Jesus. What do you think would have happened if Peter never deconstructed that part of his faith? Here's the point. That kind of growth and the number of people coming to know Jesus would not have happened without some deconstructing in Peter's life, right? Right? You see, in the early Christian movement, this teaching of Jesus, the freedom, the sense of love, commitment to God's word, uh, had become entangled with all of the rules and, you know, extra stuff of Judaism. And Peter had to question, what of this do I really, what is really core to being a follower of Christ? And what do I need to release? And if you read about the early church, even in like Acts chapter 15, They have a council, a church council, to talk about this and say, so do they need to be circumcised? And what about, you know, the dietary things? And what do they really need to do to be a follower? That's what Acts 15 is all about. And they're wrestling with this. And are we going to welcome these non-Jewish people in? They had to do some deconstructing. And you know, I wonder if there are times that the Lord is prompting us, and maybe it's not with the vision, maybe it is, but we have a tendency, as time goes on, to bundle together with a genuine, pure devotion to Christ. We put a whole lot of other things with it, that some kind, times can drag down uh, our witness and the contagious quality of our faith. Let me give a couple examples here. Um, things that maybe we need to to have needed to release. When I was growing up, this was when I was in my 20s, like the, it was the 18th century. Uh, and, and I was, uh, but I, I, there was a movement in a number of churches that was referred to as shepherding, the shepherding movement. But as I describe it, a few of you my age or older might remember this. But the idea was is that Jesus is the good shepherd and, and, and those who are leading in the church are the under shepherds. And the problem is that they took their role a little more a little further than what was healthy. And so if if you were thinking about who you were going to date, you needed to get like permission from your shepherd. Certainly before you got married, you got a job offer in another town, don't think you can make that decision on your own. Like you got to talk. you got to find out from the shepherds what it is. And, and they would sort of guilt you into having to be a church almost like every single day of the week, and there was just manipulation. Now, let's say a person grew up with that. And they start to wrestle, and they go, you know what? I, this is suffocating for me. And, the, and they begin to go, I, I don't really know if I want to have this be part of my faith. Is that healthy Deconstruction or unhealthy? That's that's a healthy deconstruction, right? Even if people say, well, I think that's in the Bible, that they go, I I think this is heavy-handed toxic leadership, and they leave that behind, but they don't need to leave Jesus behind. The problem is some people throw out not only the extra stuff, they throw out everything. Today, it sometimes is Our faith is maybe gets entangled with, you know, everything from personalities to politics. Um, Maybe you've been in a church, you've seen a group of Christians that being a Christian meant you needed to vote in a certain way. So to be a Christian or part of this church means you're gonna vote Democrat. Or to be part of this church means you're gonna vote Republican. And, and that was seen on almost a par with being a Christian is like we're Christians and we all are part of this political party. And a, a, a person grows up in that and they grow up and they go, you know what? I've started doing some reading. I've talked to some people who actually vote differently and they're really strong followers of Jesus. And I might not agree with everything, but they take their faith very seriously. But they don't vote the way all of us used to vote. And maybe they're still a follower of Jesus. And what's happened is someone might deconstruct and go, I think that the politics got too wrapped up with what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You're saying, are you saying I can't have a political view? No, I'm saying, but when a, a person or a church identifies an entire platform of a political party and say, to be a Christian means you adopt that, I'd go, that, that's, not like, that's not biblical. That's, that's adding to your faith. I talked to someone today. They, they mentioned this. They said they were in a church uh, not super long ago, like 20 years ago. And this was a church where you had to dress up. And so they wore a suit. There was a guy wore a suit. And um, and someone came up to him in between uh, and said, uh, Hey, you're going to need to go home and, and get uh, dressed into something else. He was like, um, And they said, You. It's, you can't do a blue shirt. Like we only, it's white shirts is all we do here. This was a church. What if you bring a friend and they're like, they wore a blue shirt that day, and someone goes up and speaks to them? How does that affect the witness of that church? It's terrible, isn't it? My wife, this was when Mary was in college, different stage, she took someone of a different ethnic background to a church she never thought twice of it, right? She found out later that people were sort of horrified that she thought about bringing someone who wasn't white into that church. That's terrible. Do we need to deconstruct that? If there, you've been in a, absolutely that needs to be. You know what it's like? It's like the barnacles on a ship. Anybody's ever been in the navy, or been out in salt water. You know that in time that a sh- uh, any kind of boat in salt water begins to get barnacles on the bottom and and they're hard to get off in fact they say when they secrete whatever they secrete it's like the strength of like concrete and i was reading how the us navy says that that barnacles on a ship just want to make sure i get my stats right here they said that barnacle growth not only increases the weight of a boat but it increases the drag trying to move forward, increases the drag by as much as 60%, and can result in a 40% increase in fuel consumption. So if you're the captain of that boat, or you're in charge of maintenance, what are you going to do on a regular basis? you got to get rid of those barnacles, right? you got to deconstruct those things that have been added to you, that slow down... that cause drag in your faith, that weigh you down. And friends, the same thing sometimes happens with our Christian faith, that we allow various things to get wrapped up and and it it impacts our witness, it, it drags us down. We might begin to go, I don't really know what I... You know what happens when we can release some of that? And we say, I'm going to be done with that. That's not really a part of what Instead, I'm going to accept the invitation of Jesus where he looked out at a group of people and he simply said what? Come, follow me. It was an invitation to know him, to be in a relationship with him. And friends, when we do that, when we deconstruct like Peter, when we, we release some of the things that have held back or we've gotten wrapped up around the gospel that are really not part of what the, pure gospel is. Uh, Peter went after this hard in books like the book to the Galatians and others and, and scolded them and said, you're letting things get wrapped up around the gospel. And when we can take those barnacles off and say, you know what Jesus asks of you and asks of me, he just says, come and follow me. Sometimes people say, Jonathan, you've known, I think, some religious leaders who have really ended up in the ditch. How has it impacted you? It's been, I mean, if I'm honest, emotionally, I've been sometimes crushed, super sad. But how has it impacted my faith? I come back to the fact that Jesus never told me, Jonathan, come and follow my followers. He said, come and follow whom? Me. Other people are going to let me down. Other people are going to let you down. But ultimately, the question we want to ask is, who is Jesus? But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about that next week. So let's recap for a moment here. When it comes to deconstruction, it's nothing new. It's normal, and it can be healthy. We can let go of some things that we've allowed to get added to our faith that actually weigh us down, and and uh, cause drag. And when we deconstruct in a healthy way, and we reconstruct something, you know, you know what can happen to our witness? It's like the letter I read at the beginning. That our witness becomes more contagious that it reduces the drag, that we begin to see lives transformed and people go, wow, the way that you reflect Jesus and and people begin to see him and us in a clearer way. May it be for us. We're going to look at this more next week, how some people don't just leave the legalism behind like Peter, they actually walk away from Jesus. What's the most important question they need to ask? How do we respond? We'll talk more about that next week. But I want to ask can I pray for you before we close here? In fact, I'm going to ask you to pray along with me, and uh, so I'm just going to lead us, uh, guide us, our prayer time in a couple of areas here, and and you feel free to pray sort of quietly in your heart as I pray aloud. So you start something like this: Lord, I want to surrender all that I am to you again. I want to love you with my heart, my soul, Lord. I want to love you with my mind. I want to understand, Lord. So I pray that you would teach me by your Holy Spirit. Lord, help me to release anything that I've let get added to my faith that is actually slowing me down or maybe impacting others in a negative way. Help me to be just devoted, Jesus, fully to you I wanna accept your invitation when you said, come and follow me. Lord, I want to do that, I wanna follow you, to know you better. I'm sure some names have come to mind. Can we just pray for a moment for one or two people that you really love, that you say, God, I know they're struggling right now in their faith, or maybe they've left it behind. Lord, I bring them to you you love them even more than I do. Lord, would you pour out your love into their hearts. Give them understanding. Where their hearts have been disillusioned or they've been hurt by the comments of others, bring healing. I pray that you would put people with contagious faith in their path who will cause them to doubt their doubts and to want to know you once again and to receive your invitation to come and follow me. So Lord, thank you for being merciful to me and my doubts, to each one of us, help us to be merciful to each other. And Lord, we pray, give us understanding in this area so that we'll know you better, our faith will go deeper, and become more winsome to the people you bring our way. Jesus, do what we pray in your name. And everyone said, amen, amen.